two Barclays analysts. One hot topic, all sides explored. This is The Flip Side. The Flip Side is a podcast series featuring lively debate between two Barclays research analysts, taking opposing viewpoints on timely topics of importance to economies and businesses around the globe. Welcome to The Flip Side. My name is Jeff Melley. I'm the Global Head of Research at Barclays. I'm joined today by Michael Gapin, our Chief U.S. Economist. Thanks for joining me, Mike. Thanks for having me on, Jeff. All right, today we're going to discuss a concept that has been called human infrastructure, where government investments and social programs are meant to improve the capacity of the economy. It's a companion to hard infrastructure, which I debated with our colleague Jonathan Miller in episode 34. Now, early versions of the original U.S. infrastructure bill included some of the provisions we'll talk about today that are meant more for human infrastructure, but they were dropped in the compromise bill that passed the Senate and is now sitting with the House. These provisions have been moved into the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill that's cur- currently being debated in Congress. Right. And there is, there's general agreement that spending on hard infrastructure can lead to positive supply effects through boosting the stock of physical capital in the economy. The conventional wisdom around social or human capital is is more mixed. I think many think that government assistance programs create disincentives to work, not necessarily incentives to work. In my opinion, though, I think the programs that are being considered do address real underlying issues like access to childcare and elder care, early education, as well as college access. All of these, in my opinion, are constraining the productive capacity of of the U.S. economy. So just as spending on hard infrastructure increases the physical capital stock, I think spending on human infrastructure can increase both labor supply and human capital. Some of these benefits, I think, can be immediate, and I think others may only emerge over time. But in my view, I think this is spending that can be good for the economy and is good investment. Well, Mike, I disagree. I think the programs will increase the prices of the services that they're meant to make more affordable. And I think will likely reduce the labor supply in the U.S. economy, not what we'd expect from something we call an investment. But before we start, I think we should be clear that we're focused on the economic returns of these programs, not the human returns. So some of these proposals would clearly benefit the recipients, and those benefits may very well be worth the money spent. But we're asking a a different question here, which is whether this spending will generate an economic return. That's right. That's right. And it's good that we note that. And and I think I see two main ways that these investments, if, if I can call them that, drive economic returns. So first... Many of these programs will reduce constraints on prospective employees that keep them from working. Effectively, I think these programs will increase labor supply, which will then, of course, have obvious economic benefits. So we can unlock human capital that might otherwise be sidelined, such as a skilled stay-at-home parent. Looking back at the Affordable Care Act, we found that this is indeed true, or I should say, can be true under well-designed programs. The second category is programs that will better equip our labor force to compete in the modern economy, which also has potential economic benefits, but one that ultimately may take longer to come to fruition. And in order for these to be considered investments, they really do need to improve the productive capacity of the economy. Yes, that's right. And 
I'll start with the part of the bill that I think we have the most experience with and knowledge about, and that's extending coverage under the Affordable Care Act. So if we look back in time, the uninsured rate fell by about eight percentage points in the U.S. from 18 percent to 10 percent when the Affordable Care Act was passed. That's great, but it still leaves about 30 million Americans without health care coverage, extending the subsidies that we put in during the pandemic, altering eligibility requirements could mean several million more Americans have health care coverage, according to studies done by the Kaiser Family Foundation. I think this can support participation in the workforce. It's exactly what we found in our analysis when we looked at states that fully adopted the ACA. Uh, versus the states that didn't. The states that adopted the ACA saw higher rates of insurance coverage as well as higher rates of labor force participation. It also made participation more cyclical, meaning recoveries might bring you more employment. And perhaps that happens because it weakens the link between employment status and insurance coverage. So I would expect some of the same benefits from extending the ACA uh, to increase rates of healthcare coverage. Now, look, Mike, I certainly agree that finding a way to get more people health insurance is a worthwhile goal. But while, you know, the analysis that you're referencing of the original ACA is compelling, I'd argue that we've already captured the low-hanging fruit in terms of the effect on labor supply. So the ACA dramatically improved the affordability of health care. At this point, at least some of the uninsured are choosing not to buy insurance. And in fact, the uninsured tend to be younger on average, where the cost-benefit trade-off may make less sense for them. Undocumented immigrants are another big category of the uninsured. They're not even included in these subsidies, probably for some combination of political and logistical reasons. So I think we can temper our expectations for how much ever larger subsidies will accomplish, both in terms of more coverage, but certainly in terms of the effect on labor supply. Another program that can have immediate benefits, however, I think is subsidized childcare. I think we all know that quality childcare is expensive and helping lower income households with quality childcare could mean fewer days of lost productivity from parents missing work and greater workforce attachment over time by parents. Participation, I think we need to remind ourselves, participation adds up over a lifetime. Earnings and career advancement are negatively affected by gaps in employment. You know, Mike, I think this issue is overstated. So, for example, the early evidence suggests that mothers with young children return to the workforce relatively quickly after the initial COVID disruptions. And that at this point, that's relatively low on the list of constraints that keeping labor force participation low. So I think that's true. I would agree with you on that point. But I think the COVID experience is is a bit misleading or is not what we should be looking at. I think you're in this case, you would be necessarily talking only about women who were already in the workforce before COVID. So they were paid sufficiently to make that choice and they were already attached to the workforce prior to the pandemic. I'm arguing here a different point that subsidizing childcare could expand the workforce by opening doors to those who were not participating prior to the pandemic. So I think the pandemic experience is a bit misleading and I, and I think we need to cast our net a little wider. You know, I, I'd also point out that only about 10% of US households actually have children under the age of five. So we're starting with a relatively small part of the workforce. Then 
a bunch of those folks already have it figured out and have managed somehow to balance work and childcare. So we're proposing a big widespread program that would apply to lots of people where in the best case, it only brings a small number of new workers into the economy. But that's, I think that's only one part of the bill and why multiple elements are, are being proposed. Elder care is another important component of, of this bill, of this package. The potential benefits of helping families care for older family members or relatives mirror those of helping with childcare. So the, the Pew Research Center, for example, estimates that up to 40 million Americans spend some time providing unpaid care to another adult and that those people spend less time on average working. And that's now with, a, with an aging population. I think this issue is only going to become more important in the future. You know, I go back to my earlier comment, which is the issues that these proposals are intended to address are challenges for our society. I mean, certainly elder care is something we will need to confront given our demographics. But once you move away from healthcare, I think the connections to labor supply become more tenuous. Now, the way our, our health insurance system is set up in the US, it's naturally linked to employment. And so there's this, there's this natural give and take with working and healthcare that I don't think exists in some of these, uh, these other areas. You know, these proposals apply very broadly, but the potential improvements to the labor supply, I think, are only at the margins, which is why considering them to be an investment to me is, is a bit of a leap. Okay, I'm going to shift gears to, to education, which is an area where I think benefits to the economy are likely to be more obvious. The, the current version of the bill includes proposals to include both early child education, namely universal pre-K, and more affordable access to college through a program that would provide free community college as well as expanding the, the Pell Grant Award. Now, the early education programs really play two roles. One is more of the child care story, and the other is about uh, better equipping kids for later educational successes. I think both of these could have benefits, although I would argue I think we will only see those benefits over an extended period of time. Now, look, I think education has a lot more potential as an investment in our human capital. So I think you're starting on much stronger footing with this set of programs. Now that said, there's a lot of research that suggests the gains on the early education programs are very speculative. So maybe, but I think childcare is an, an ongoing need. It's structural and it, and it doesn't go away. I think universal pre-K could provide workers with greater confidence that they can manage working while parenting. So I'm focused here more on what I think universal pre-K could mean for labor supply of the parent and less so about trying to estimate returns to early education, which might be difficult to pin down. Turning to, to education at, at the higher level, I think the, the gains from free community college and a more generous Pell Grant are, are probably more complete and concrete. The outcome to the student is more tangible. There's a degree, there's knowledge that they otherwise would not have had. And increasingly, the basic skills from a high school education are, are not enough to succeed, but it's the high cost of college that, are, that is likely keeping too many people away. We have record numbers of job openings in the U.S. at the moment, about 11 million, according to, to the recent data. And at least some of that is likely due to a skills gap. Employers simply can't find workers with the right skills and, and training. 
So I think the economy will benefit from closing that skills gap and better equipping American workers to compete. You know, again, I'd say we're zeroing in on a real and important constraint on the U.S. Uh, economy, and and certainly I'm all for finding programs to help close the skills gap. And that that job openings statistic is is really a shocking one, considering that we still haven't recovered all, all from the unemployment shock. So there's plenty of unemployed workers, but yet they, they don't seem to be a great match to the open jobs. The question I have is whether this is the right program to close it. So uh, let's let's think about what happens when you subsidize college. Uh, subsidized college tuition, guess what happens? The price of college goes up. As it is, the cost of college has been rising too fast. On average, college tuition costs are rising 8% a year over the past several decades. That's way above the rate of inflation. I suspect that further subsidies just add fuel to the fire and we'll see college costs continue to rise. Look, I, I think that's exactly the issue we need we need to solve. C community college, I think, is is a good place to start. Costs at the community college level are rising more slowly than your average private four-year institution. And the percentage of first-generation college students is relatively high at the community college level. And some have argued that this, this type of program, free community college, should also be paired with caps on, on the rate of increase in community college tuition. All right, now we're talking about implementing both subsidies and price controls. So getting to be you know, very heavily managed. Um, you know, I think that um, regardless of, of the sort of price issue, you know, I think that we have public primary and secondary education for a very specific reason. It's because left to themselves, people underinvest in their own education. There are societal benefits from having an educated population that don't accrue to the individual. Those include things like less crime, higher taxes, you know, more, more commitment to, uh, to children's education. Um, you know, but the primary benefits of college really go to the individual in the form of higher wages. That means that we really shouldn't need to subsidize demand yeah, but I, I don't think we can seriously argue that in, in 2021, the externalities from education stop at the high school level and that there aren't externalities at, at the college or the, the higher education level. I, I think maybe that, yeah, that's probably true 50 to 100 years ago, but the world has advanced quite a bit from, from that point. And I still think there's value to this, th these types of these programs. Well, that's a fair point that uh, the world has moved on from when we first set up public secondary schools. Uh, you know, I still believe that the costs of college reflect already an excess of demand over supply. And so subsidizing demand is really a fool's errand. I think we'd be better off increasing the supply of higher education. So we learned a lot through the pandemic. Maybe there's ways to improve access through the use of more online learning, for example. Plus, if you look at the demographics, they suggest that the college age population is actually going to shrink over the next couple of decades, which will already naturally reduce the tensions here that we're talking about. But but I actually want to turn to some bigger picture objections to the notion that that these sorts of proposals are, are a form of investment in the economy. So first, I think the issue that I raised around prices going up for college tuition actually applies more broadly. And these are what we call general equilibrium effects. So the prices of these goods react to the subsidies, as do the prices of other goods more generally. 
So if you give families more money, for example, for childcare, then the price of childcare goes up. So that can be true, and there is evidence to support that. I just say that there are there are constraints built into the program. The proposals cap the amount of spending per family, so it's likely going to limit the overall price effect on the cost of childcare. Uh, I'd argue, in, in some cases, really, there there are measures to increase supply, which could be beneficial, like raising the minimum wage for childcare providers could could induce. Uh, more workers to move into that sector and increase the amount of, of childcare offered. Well, the cap that you're referencing definitely would help families that qualify for the program and so wh- whose spending would be capped. Um, but that means, in my mind, that the price increases just affect all the other families, and in particular, the families who are just over the hurdle uh, would feel that the most. Um, also, in terms of the supply, where are these extra workers going to come from? We have a massive labor shortage right now. Restaurants can't find workers. Schools can't find bus drivers. We have a shortage of construction workers. All that is built into those jolts numbers that you mentioned. Right. But again, I think that's likely an artifact of, of COVID and, and, and it's likely to be temporary. It may take a few years to work out. But from the long-term perspective of the economy and addressing, say, structural shortcomings in, in the the labor force and participation in the supply side of the economy, I think we can, again, cast our net a, a bit wider. We, we still have, even, even considering the pandemic, we still have a large number of people who have yet to return to the workforce. And the Delta variant has probably slowed our progress on that front. I, I think over time they will return and these labor shortages are, are going to ease. All right, now let's think about the other general equilibrium effects that can absorb the value of this benefit. So if we subsidize childcare, then all of a sudden you have more disposable income, so your landlord can raise your rent. So the other prices of goods that you're purchasing can rise in response to this. So Jeff, I think you're getting at what I'll call a design point there. Like, so the legislation, of course, has to be well-designed and, and well-targeted, but some sometimes maybe it's better to, to do it in a more general sense. So rather than provide uh, a tax credit for childcare, maybe what we should do is just provide a childcare credit in and of itself, and the household can decide how to use those funds as they see fit. This is what was included in the most recent COVID relief bill. So maybe designing designing it in a more general way uh, is better. Families can spend it uh, where they have the most need. If it is childcare, then that would reduce that important constraint for them. Uh, and maybe by spreading it out, it doesn't lead to you know a targeted price increase. But like I said, no no bill is perfect. This could be adjusted over time. I'm a little less worried about uh, the details of of this right now. Well, my second issue is that I think you kind of cherry picked some specific proposals in a in a really large bill that has a lot of different proposals built into it. And you cherry pick the ones that you think will benefit labor supply, largely because they're similar to the to the ACA, where you've done a lot of analysis on how that mechanism worked. I could pick other proposals that I think have the opposite effect. So I'll give you one example. The drafts being discussed now contain a provision guaranteeing workers 12 weeks of paid family leave every year. 12 weeks. That's a quarter of the year. Yes. Okay. But I, I think we need to be careful. Normally, these types of benefits, paid family leave, get phased in over many years, so it wouldn't be an immediate change. 
They're also intended to be used in only certain circumstances. It's not three months of paid vacation every year. And the intent of this is really to help workers manage important life events while avoiding financial hardships and having to choose whether or not to work. So I think reducing uncertainty from big life events could keep workforce attachment elevated. Look, some versions of this bill actually have quite expansive sets of circumstances under which you would qualify for this benefit. But you're making a good point that the details uh, are still uh, not finalized and, and, and the final bill could be a bit more limited. But let's just, let's think, even a limited uptake of this would mean that the total amount of labor lost through people taking paid family leave would swamp all of these gains on the margin from the programs that you were talking about. In fact, I would actually argue that a program like paid family leave is actually specifically designed to reduce our productive capacity. It's actually about creating a more humane version of capitalism where it's less necessary to be working and producing all of the time and, and you know, at the expense of all of the, the other issues that are coming up in your life. Now, again, this may be a great idea. It may be a more humane version of capitalism, but that's very different from saying that it's good for the economy. I feel like there's a trade-off here that's represented in a bill like this, which is that we're explicitly taking some of our money and spending it on these sorts of benefits rather than suggesting that these benefits will somehow generate a return in, in the form of, of more activity. Yeah, I disagree, and I think this is this is obviously a point that that we have disagreement on. I, I I think paid leave is critical for parents, and I also think paid medical leave will allow employees to attack healthcare problems earlier and improve health outcomes. I actually see it as a complement to expanding healthcare coverage in the efforts that have been made under the Affordable Care Act. Well, I guess we'll see how this bill works its way through Congress, and uh, and I and I suspect. It will provide plenty of opportunity for further discussion. Thanks for joining this episode of The Flipside. Clients can read our analysis of the Affordable Care Act and labor force participation in reinvigorating U.S. labor force participation from our 2020 Equity Guild Study and our latest forecast for the U.S. economy in our Q4 Global Outlook entitled Looking Past the V. That's all for now from this Barclays podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on The Flipside. For more insights about this topic, clients can log into Barclays Live or find out more at barclays.com/ib.